Hey, welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and Peter Kadzis and I are coming to you for this episode from that little cafe at the front of Boston City Hall. Peter, what's the name of this place? The Lobby Cafe, interestingly enough. You are nursing a double espresso, am I right? It's um, Rainforest Alliance Coffee from Nicaragua. Very tasty. Very JP of you also. Well, as a matter of fact, these folks have a, a, a place in West Roxbury, not far from me. It's worth noting that you and I frequently are critical of Mayor Marty Walsh on this podcast, but I, I got to say I like what he has done with the interior and the exterior of Boston City Hall. It seems like he's been pretty creative when it comes to turning what can be a kind of austere, unwelcoming public space into something that people might actually want to gravitate to. Yeah, they've done a great job outside especially, and it's been done so simply just by putting picnic tables and some Adirondack chairs out there. I think it's terrific, and it works very well. That said, we are not here to lavish praise on Marty Walsh's management of public space, but to talk about housing policy in the city of Boston. Right now, there are a raft of proposals being made by the mayor, being made by the Boston City Council to rein in the very, very high cost of housing in the city. And it's probably worth noting that you and I have really different perspectives on this issue. I am a transplant to Massachusetts. I lived in Boston all of two months, house-sitting in Savin Hill, right before my wife and I got married nearly 20 years ago. Uh, I would love to have the option of being able to come in from the suburbs and live in the city at some point, but I honestly don't think I'm ever going to because it is just cheaper for us to live in the burbs than it is to live in the city. I don't think we could do it if we wanted to, but you have a very different uh, outlook on this issue, Peter. Can you recap your history for listeners who might not know it? Well, sure. I mean, I, I live in Jamaica Plain. When we bought our house 25, 26 years ago, um, my house, which is near White Stadium, had been on the market for a year. Uh, today, houses on my street usually sell overnight often above asking price and usually for cash. Um, It's pretty frightening. I worry that my three boys won't be able to live in Boston. Boston is a scary place these days. Well, Peter, as you know, there are people in City Hall who are a little more bullish about their ability to affect some kind of positive change in this front than you are. Uh, we are about to hear from two of them, city councilors Lydia Edwards and Michelle Wu. So, unfortunately, it's time to leave the cozy confines of the lobby cafe and head on up to the council offices. Let's go. Okie doke. That is the happiest political baby uh, I've I'm ever sorry, seen. Baby. Hey, no, not at all. He was sick last week, but I apparently I need a doctor's note to clear him. So. I think I know that. By the way, for I listeners who are confused, you've probably guessed that the yeah, cooing in the background is over Councilor Michelle Wu's son. What's his name? Oh, he's adorable. Yes. Hey! Now, I remember when my older daughter was probably around that age, um, when I worked at the Phoenix, Peter was the editor, bringing her in. I think I'd been on paternity leave, and my daughter reached out and touched your beard and then started to cry. And you said... I have that effect on people. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for making time to do this. Greatly appreciated.
All right, so it has seemed to me like every week almost the council or the mayor are advancing some new idea aimed at reining in housing costs in the city. And my impression has been lately uh, that you, Councillor Lydia Edwards, are behind a whole bunch of these proposals. So could I ask you at the outset to maybe recap the various possibilities that the city's kicking around, both the council and the mayor, uh, and then I'd love to get you and Councillor Wu to weigh in on which ones you think are most potentially useful. In general, I think we were elected all with a mandate to make sure that we're protecting our housing stock and that Boston continues to be a city for uh, middle-class folks to live and grow in. And right now we have a compromise, if you will, between the mayor and the council and understanding of what we should be doing to regulate. Major tenants uh, include that short-term rentals will be limited to only owner-occupied uh, individuals um, and that those owner-occupied folks would have uh, their own unit for 365 days if they choose and they can have an additional unit um, for 120 days maximum for short-term rental use, uh, that there will be a registry that they're required to register in, uh, that there would also be a certain um, a requirement that if you're going to do business as a platform in Boston, that you're going to have to uh, make sure that you can only list registered units and that you are providing data about who you are um, listing and working with in the city of Boston. Otherwise, you will not be able to work in the city of Boston. Um, we also are making sure that when we, we are holding people accountable, so if you list an unregistered unit, that you'll have to pay a, a daily fine of $300. Uh, Councillor, roughly how many Airbnb-style units are there in Boston right now? When we looked at the website for Airbnb, I think we, we, we had estimated about 4,000 folks. About 2,000 of them were almost 365 days a year in the city of Boston. First of all, let me say, I, I applaud your efforts, but how much of a difference can this make in a city that the last time I checked is the 18th most expensive in the world to live? And third in the nation. And third in the nation, thank you. Um, how much can this help? Well, I think that one of the biggest issues is that if there's an economic incentive to not rent, in any way, shape, or form, whether it's to hold your property empty or to just only run short-term rentals, if the priority is not to rent to people who live in Boston, to stay in Boston, then we are not, uh, as a city, incentivizing or working to make sure people can stay in Boston. I want to get to some of the other proposals that are floating out there in a second, but before I do, Councillor Michelle Wu, as someone who was personally targeted by Airbnb for your ideas uh, about how to regulate them, although in some cases they were wrong about your ideas. Are you happy with the compromise that Councillor Lydia Edwards just described? Does it go far enough? I think it's a very reasonable balance of making sure we're reining in and closing down some of the corporate loopholes and also keeping the benefits to homeowners of this new technology. I wholeheartedly agree with everything Lydia said, and it's also not just about returning this universe of several thousand units that are already being used for Airbnb, but stemming the bleeding, really. I mean, the pressure continues on housing prices. And every day we know, particularly in some neighborhoods, but across the city, we're seeing folks have developers knocking on their doors, offering all cash. Chinatown has been under maybe the most intense pressure, but the north end, a lot of the downtown neighborhoods, and we're seeing it spread as far as you know the outer neighborhoods as well. So, Councillor Edwards, you've also talked about finding ways to regulate flipping. What are some of the other steps that you think the city should be taking? 
Well, again, I think it's part of the mindset that I'd love the city to adopt, which is that Boston is not for sale. And we're not, our housing stock is not the new stock market. And unfortunately, that's what it is for a lot of people. It is a place where you can buy, sell, and trade, except we're talking about apartments. And the fact is, there's not a stock that is trading as high as a Boston apartment right now. And the, what you can gain in a week, you know, in terms of it's, we, when I was working in the administration, we saw a unit on Tremont Street sell for a million dollars on Monday. By, by Friday was selling for a mil five. And they didn't even put a doorknob on that. And there's no way that there's any other stock that's doing that. And there's no incentive for them to do anything with it, to house somebody, even if it is a millionaire. They're not getting housed in those things. They're literally buying, holding, keeping empty, and then selling at a more opportune time. And so we need to act like the SEC. We need to get in there and start to regulate. It should not be easier to have an apartment that's empty. So we can look at vacancy taxes. We can look at foreign and, um, investor taxes that really help to de-incentivize being able to trade apartments like this. Um, we can look at flippers taxes as well, and making sure that when people come into a community, it is not a, a business model to be able to evict and empty a building, hold it empty, and then either Airbnb or condo eyes the entire thing. We want to make sure that when people see investment in Boston, they see long-term, they see families, they see middle-class growing. Could you give us some examples of cities that have such taxes, like the flipping tax or a tax on empty apartments? Sure. Right now, Vancouver did, for example, the foreign speculation tax, and it worked. And what happened is that they all moved to Seattle and invested in there. Um, and in terms of the flippers tax, that has been proposed, I know, in other cities. I do not know right now offhand of, of a city that's passed a flippers tax. And then there's also the um, transfer fee that's actually being um, proposed at the State House right now um, from Representative Mike Connolly that would capture some of the income from those million dollars. I think it's over a million or two million dollars some of that income back to put it in a housing trust fund. I, I mean, what's interesting about Boston's problem is it, it's really part of a, an international problem that is related to the international concentration or reconcentration of wealth into a smaller and smaller circle. I mean, this is a problem in London. This is a problem in Paris. Um, it's a problem in Boston. This is a new frontier for everyone. Councilor Shawu. And I was just going to say, I mean, all of those cities that you mentioned are international hubs, and we're really lucky that Boston is a place that people want to visit and invest in, but it just shows how intense the pressure is and, and the need for us to be proactive about planning. I mean, there, we're, I think, in the midst of playing catch-up around the housing market, around Airbnb and the short-term rentals, around so many different things, because we need a more comprehensive approach to planning and zoning overall. As both of you know better than me, Anytime that there is big money at stake in politics, there is extremely aggressive lobbying that goes on and extremely intense pressure that gets applied. I know Airbnb, Airbnb has been pushing back at, at uh, the city's interest in regulating them, regulating short-term rentals, but who's, who's pushing back at some of the other measures, Councillor Lydia Edwards, that you just described? Well, I think you're um, seeing people ch try to change the narrative to this is just a tax it and trying to ruin a good thing and so on and so forth. So I, I wouldn't say that there's a massive organized effort of folks who are rich landowners who are, who are coming and knocking on our doors. I think that they've just tried to change the narrative to something that, you know, this is just anti-market, anti this is anti-capitalist, this is, you're, you're just not being realistic. My response to that, I mean, is not so much whether we're regulating this uh, or, or ruining a market. It's really just trying to 
to make sure that we're defining uh, limitations for how much we are going to be for sale. That's the question, and, and, and how we come up with those regulations and rules, and then everyone can play a fair game. But right now, it's lopsided. None of us, are, the middle class, can't play in this, in this pool. There, there are people who are just starting who have no chance of being able to stay in Boston, and I, I'm, I really think we're trying to, to, to even or level the playing field. When you talk about those people trying to change the narrative, how do they do that? How are they trying to frame it in a way that benefits them? They don't really necessarily do the speaking. They try to get the small property owner to come out and say, but for this, I wouldn't be able to afford my mortgage and so on and so forth. You get organizations that are only representing property owners and screaming rent control at every single idea that comes out uh, that has to do with regulating um, Boston housing. They just scream it out there like it's a horrible thing or people scream that, you know, this is the Section 8 queen or something like that. I mean, you just get these horrible narratives that have that they're really blaming poor people and really just anti, um, you know, regulation in any way, shape, or form. But you get these kind of characters to show up all the time, this motley crew, and start screaming. Transportation is also just so closely linked with these issues. If our MBTA, if our commuter rail system were more convenient, were more reliable, more affordable, we wouldn't have to be thinking about housing in such a condensed little radius from where the jobs are. It, it should be possible that people live little further out the city, out of the city, you know, that take the jobs out there as well, but it shouldn't be, uh, you know, you're within this small ring, otherwise you can't make it. I asked you about pressure from developers or property owners. I got to ask you how Mayor Marty Walsh feels about the measures when it comes to taxing flipping, for example, or limiting the ability of people to treat the real estate market as a de facto stock market. Uh, he's made common cause with you guys when it comes to short-term rental regulation. Is he inclined to do the same when it comes to some of those steps, or is he more wary? Um, you should ask him, honestly. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Um, I think that there's a, a certain narrative that he's very, very committed to, which is building as much as possible. And so I actually think that this complements his narrative, and I hope he sees that, that in making sure that people can't speculate on all of the new units that he's putting up, right, by owning them and not occupying them, by just really flipping them, by turning them into short-term rentals. I think these proposals are actually helping his narrative of building, but really building for the middle class, because we're going to make sure people just can't own them and not uh, and take them off the market again. Now, correct my numbers if I'm wrong here, but. I see many units being built for people with an income of, say, 81000 a year, which today isn't as much as it sounds, but in a city where the median is 37000 I believe, that's a big gap. I, by the way, I also see in the papers about units reserved for people making $31,000 a year. How do we define middle class? And I guess a follow-up to that is in the absence of federal action, how do we build housing in a city for poor people? Councillor Wu, I'm going to give those two very easy questions to you to answer. <laughs> well, I mean, the reality is that we're in a very different environment now, even since I took office less than five years ago, and we can't rely on anything from other levels of government. For housing in particular, that means the city is pushing to think about public-private partnerships. In a perfect world, would the 
public sector have total control over who gets to live in affordable housing and how much there is and, and be able to put it where we need it and adjust it to the proper income levels, yes, 100%. Even when there was federal funding there, you know, or state funding, that affects the income levels and so the city's kind of jurisdiction's already shrinking there. But you know, with larger developments like the One Charlestown project that um, Councilor Edwards has been very involved in and now in South Boston as well, the city is looking very realistically and pragmatically at how do we add mixed income, how do we try to find a sustainable funding source separate from the federal government. I think you hit the distance really straight on when you talked about what we're building for and who we have actually living here. And so there's been some talk actually about how the measuring stick that needs to be re revamped. We need to look at, you know, not just an area medium index, but looking at a Boston median in income as well in terms of who we're building for. So you have a real understanding of the city of Boston, who's living here, and then actually telling developers this is who you need to build for, for one thing. Just to be explicit, so you're not having new units created that are aimed at the middle class, broadly speaking, taking into account the incomes of people who live in the suburbs rather right. than the city, right? Right, right. Just just starting with only the average uh, income in Boston as the as the as the median, and uh, that's one way that we could start to have that conversation. The other thing about the eighty-one thousand dollar is it's assuming two people, right? And a lot of households I came from one are single family homes. So when you plan a two person household that makes this, then and your city doesn't look like that, then there's a disconnect. Um, the other thing uh, with regards to uh, the total abdication of the federal government, if not almost hostility towards its role in providing uh, housing, as you see with HUD trying to raise the amount of money people have to pay who are already on subsidized housing. There's creative ways in which we can look at it as well. You know, we have not traditionally bonded for housing in the city of Boston, we, and we should consider that. Do we want to go ahead and bond $100 million, but out, you know, for 40 years or something like that? Like, how do we think of ways in which we can also gather money locally to invest in housing project? I know that um, there's a new movement of real estate investment cooperatives where people are putting in $1,000 each, $2,000 each, and bundling their money to help buy up projects and buildings and blocks in their neighborhoods. This is not uncommon, and it's happened in Minnesota, and so I'm part of the solidarity economy, just putting myself out there, but those are things I believe in is being able to return back to community properties, being able to have community invest directly in there in public works, especially because the federal government has abdicated its role. So we have to be creative about where the money is also coming in, even from the communities that, they're, that these um, housing projects are in. I feel like we may have reached a natural endpoint, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up the conversation by putting you, Peter Kadzis, in a hopefully uncomfortable spot. Peter and I were chatting about all this stuff uh, before we came up here in the lobby cafe. And Peter was saying that he thinks it's excellent that the council and the mayor are looking for ways to, to deal with this problem, which he's witnessed firsthand as a guy who grew up in Boston and lives in Boston and now is afraid his kids won't be able to stay there. But that uh, he is also concerned that the problem is so big and so intractable that however creative and aggressive the city gets, the impact is going to be limited. So I got to ask you, after this conversation with uh, Councilors Lydia Edwards and Michelle Wu, are you slightly more optimistic about the city's ability to uh, make a, a meaningful impact? I'm not more optimistic, um, but that's no reflection on the two councilors. I'm more impressed by the commitment to what I see as 
nothing short of an existential battle to keep Boston a livable city. And uh, it's a fight, it's like Sisyphus rolling that stone. Say that one more time because I love the analogy. Okay, it, it, it's like Sisyphus rolling that stone up the top of the hill, only they have it keep coming down. I don't see any alternative but to keep trying, but I think it's an awfully hard fight. All right, and now the last word to whichever one of you wants to tell Peter why he's being too pessimistic, if he is. I'll say it uh, very frankly. This is a man-made problem. So we made, we put ourselves here, we can get ourselves out. And now is the time for city government to really take the lead on doing that. It's clear that other levels of government have completely abdicated their will to do anything. And so the natural center of gravity has fallen locally. The energy is there out in the community to partner around it. So it's just about, are we willing to seize on this moment and, and think big and push towards that vision? All right, counselors Michelle Wu and Lydia Edwards, thank you a ton for taking the time to talk about this stuff with us. We really appreciate it. Peter Kadzis, thank you for coming to City Hall with me. I'm impressed by the optimism and uh, I wanna thank everyone too. And thanks to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. As always, we'd love to hear from you either on social media. Peter is at Kadzis. I'm at Riley Adam or via email. What's our email address, Peter? Scrum at WGBH.org. I think that's right. Please subscribe to us if you haven't already on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will talk to you again in a couple weeks. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm-hmm.